This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Uh, Good evening, everyone. I'm just really grateful and honored to be here. Uh, Thanks to Pastor Aaron, Pastor Chris uh, for having me and to everyone for coming. Uh, And even more so allowing me to speak on Palm Sunday. Um, It's such a significant day in the church calendar, and I don't uh, take that honor lightly. Uh, As Chris said, my name is Kevin Nye, and for the better part of my teens and my 20s, I thought that I was going to be a pastor in a very traditional sense. Uh, I thought that I was going to do stuff like this for a living. Uh, I will let you all at the end decide how well that would have gone. Uh, You may also see some unfamiliar faces in the crowd kind of located around that region right there. That's because this is my hometown. Uh, I was born in Chandler, raised in Tempe. Uh, I went to Marco Sidney's High School. Any Padres in the room? Yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) Bummer. Uh, And so I'm joined today by family and and friends who I've just known forever. And you might be thinking, oh, this speaker, Kevin, he brought a bunch of people to like hype him up and support him while he talks about really hard, serious things. Well, you might think that, but that's because you don't know my family and friends. (laughs) These people here, they will boo me. They will heckle me just to see me sweat. So I will actually be leaning for the most part on the rest of you to back me up. Someone feel, please feel free to escort my father out if necessary. (laughs) Things might get dicey. Uh, But no, it's such an honor to be here uh, and talking to you all, especially on this different trajectory uh, that my life took. Because instead of being um, a pastor, instead of becoming a pastor in the very traditional sense like I planned, uh, I actually spent, have spent most of my professional life working with and for people who experience homelessness. Uh, The majority of that was in Los Angeles uh, until about eight months ago, I relocated with my wife and my son who were here uh, to Minneapolis. And so taking that very traditional path to ministry, I went to Bible college, I went to seminary. Um, With all of that, it would be very easy to describe the ways that my training and my education in scripture, in theology, uh, would shape houses with a lot of ideas, a lot of presuppositions. Uh, But what I want to talk about today, I actually want to kind of flip that on its head. And I want to talk to you all about how working with people who experience homelessness has changed how I view ministry and has changed my theology and has definitely changed how I read scripture. I want to talk to you about the Jesus that I met uh, in shelters, in tent cities, uh, under overpasses, It was a Jesus that in some ways I don't think I could have met in Bible college or seminary or even at my local church. Um, And that Jesus is one who's really transformed me in ways that I can't ever shake. Um, But there's this passage in scripture that unfortunately I think can prevent us uh, from ever meeting that Jesus. And it's one of those scriptures where Jesus says something that kind of makes you scratch your head and go, why would you say that, (laughs) Jesus? That really doesn't sound like you. Uh, And it's been used by a lot of different preachers, a lot of teachers and leaders to convince us that we should be suspicious about helping the poor, uh, leery of people experiencing homelessness, that they maybe aren't worth our time or energy. Uh, I suspect you might already have an inkling about what scripture I'm talking about, 
Uh, so I'm just going to read it. Uh, I'm reading it from Mark 14, although a version of the story shows up in all four Gospels. While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Normally, when I uh, talk about this passage, I don't read that last verse, but I think it's very significant that we're entering into Holy Week, right? This very specific part of the church calendar. Because right after Jesus goes to betray Jesus, Jesus leaves Bethany and heads into Jerusalem. And we'll come back to that part in a minute. Uh, but I want to stay here in Bethany for a bit with this story. And I'm wondering, uh, by a show of hands, uh, I alluded to earlier, how many of you have ever heard this story or this passage or specifically that phrase, the poor you will always have with you, the poor will always be with you, and it was used to sort of say, well, there's nothing we can really do about poverty. There's nothing we can do about homelessness. Maybe we shouldn't bother. Anyone ever heard a version of that? Yeah. Um, I definitely heard that. I still hear it a lot when I talk about my work. Uh, but again, my work uh, and my experience with people who experience homelessness has helped me to challenge this scripture and wrestle with it for a deeper meaning that's more in line with we, who we know Jesus is uh, and more in line with what I've actually experienced with people on the street. Uh, and I'm so happy to report back from all of that that this passage does not mean we should not help the poor. Uh, it can't mean that. Uh, and even better, it's not just a passage that maybe beforehand uh, I might have wanted to just avoid it or skip over it. I actually think it has something really amazing to offer us uh, in calling us forward into more life-sustaining, more effective, and more Christian ways of interacting with poverty and homelessness. So let's start with what Jesus is definitely not saying here. Now, I'm going to confess to you all, I am not a person who normally reads the footnotes in his Bible. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, but in this passage, there is a really, really important footnote. Uh, in most Bibles, right after the, <laughs> the case in point where it says, the poor you will always have with you, there's a footnote that points you to Deuteronomy 15. Now, we know that Jesus loves quoting the Pentateuch. He very much loves quoting Deuteronomy. Uh, and if you find yourself following that footnote back to Deuteronomy 15, uh, you realize that that whole chapter leaves no question that we are obligated to help the poor. Oh, hi, buddy. How's it going? Are you enjoying my sermon? Why don't you go hang out with Mama, okay? You want to stay up here? All right. That'll probably make it go better. All right. Where was I? <laughs> 
Yep, Deuteronomy, thank you. Uh, that, this chapter leaves absolutely no question that we're obligated to help the poor. In fact, the very verse that starts with, there will always be poor in your land, that this is clearly referencing, that verse then goes right on to say, therefore you should always open your hand to those who are in need. So literally the verse, that chunk of verse that we're using to sometimes say maybe we shouldn't help the poor, Jesus is quoting a verse that goes on to say the exact opposite. Most radical chapters in all of scripture in considering how we address poverty. Jesus is referencing the part of Deuteronomy that outlines the year of Jubilee. And so here there's this verse that we've maybe been using to think about, oh, maybe we shouldn't help address poverty. Maybe there's nothing we can do. And instead, it's very clearly saying that as individuals, we should do something. And then it goes on to outline ways that as an entire people, they could eradicate poverty through canceling debt, through giving land back, through redistributing wealth. If you want to know how radical the Bible can get on poverty, head to Deuteronomy 15, which Jesus is directly quoting in this passage. On top of that, there's also a pretty significant translation issue going on here. The version that so many of us grew up hearing, that I grew up hearing, was from the NIV. And that's the version that says, the poor you will always have with you, or the poor will always be with you. And because of that will, we get this interpretation that having poverty is just a thing that's always going to be, like Jesus is making a prophecy, right? Uh, and that stifles our action. It prevents us from feeling like, oh, maybe we should do something. The poor will always be with you. It's just the way things are. But would it surprise you to know that in the original Greek, that verb is not in the future tense? And that every single other translation, whether it's your King James, NASB, NRSV, ESV, any of the Vs, they all have it in the present tense, just like in the Greek. There is no will. So the more accurate translation that all these other translations support is something more like the poor you always have with you or the poor are always with you, which totally changes everything about that passage, right? Like, how do you not get that right? Um, and it especially is significant when you remember that the majority of Jesus' disciples and the vast majority of the people that followed him from town to town were poor. Jesus even says in Luke that his mission and the whole reason he's here on earth is to bring good news to the poor. So Jesus simply cannot be saying to ignore the poor. That's who he's talking to, right? This story takes place in Bethany, which is a Hebrew word that means the house of the poor, and so it's worth pausing here to ask a question. Is this true of us? Can the poor be found among us in our churches, in our communities? Because for Jesus, the gospel is about bringing good news to the poor. Bringing good news that they're blessed. And I won't presume, you know, this is my first time here at this church, but I do have a lot of experience in churches and in Christian communities that tend to insulate themselves from poverty, uh, seeing people who are poor or who experience homelessness as other, um, maybe someone who we need to help or who we need to feel bad for, their, bad for, but they are different from us. They're separate. But that wasn't the case for Jesus and wasn't the case for the early church. The poor are always with you should almost read like an expectation that if the voices of the poor, the voices of the marginalized, the unhoused are not part of the church, and are not centered in the church, then the church is not whole. 
the church gives us a hint about what Jesus expects our relationship to be like with the poor. Jesus' followers, remember, are saying that the woman should have sold the perfume, that it was worth a year's wages. It was made of pure nard, and they should have given that money to the poor. So if Jesus isn't saying, don't help the poor, don't they kind of have a point? Like, why isn't Jesus agreeing with them? Like, yeah, let's sell this perfume. Who cares about the perfume? We need to help the poor, right? But again, I'm grateful to all of the people who have uh, allowed me to spend time with them who experience homelessness and who have taught me uh, a little bit more about what might be going on here. And I think it's a couple of things. The first is that I think perhaps Jesus is calling us away from a model of charity and into a model of community. Remember, the poor are always with you. So this notion that we should sell the perfume and give it to the poor, it already assumes that the poor are somewhere else or that they are someone else and that the best thing that we can offer them is a monetary transaction. The poor should always be with us. The poor should always be us. If us doesn't include the poor and the marginalized, we've missed the point. Because when we live in community and solidarity with people who experience homelessness, with people who are poor, we know their needs organically. We already know them. We don't have to right? Because that distance does distance. We don't have to give money at a distance, right? Because that distance doesn't exist. And I want to say a little bit about the perfume. You doing good, buddy? All right, we're doing good. So let's talk about the perfume. Uh, Again, Mark places the story right before Judas goes to betray Jesus. And Jesus remarks that the woman has done an amazing thing and that she anointed him for his burial. Hey, buddy, I think you're being a little distracting. Yeah. Yeah. Can you go sit with mama? Go sit with mama, okay? This is way better because of that, I promise. Um, Right, so coming back to the perfume. (laughs) Uh, Jesus says that the woman has done a beautiful thing. She's anointed him for his burial. And coming back to this idea of transaction, I think, again, Jesus' followers were so caught up in the monetary value of the perfume and how that monetary value could be better allocated, right? It's so tempting in our world to put a price tag on everything. Our culture commodifies our time, our bodies, and often tries to convince us that uh, those things are the same thing as our worth, and that our value is tied up in what we can produce and what wealth we can generate for ourselves and what wealth we can generate for someone else. And I'll tell you, this is so tempting in nonprofit and social work, because you see people who are without particular resources, Uh, who have need of particular commodities, right? An apartment, a sleeping bag, um, food. And you can get very wrapped up in trying to provide those things. You'll meet these very tangible needs, and it can start to feel like like checking this box, right? Making sure everyone has all these boxes checked. Uh, And people begin to look like dollar signs and not human beings. People, us, beloved children of God, made in God's image. And I'll tell you, that image, I've never seen it dampened or diminished by lack of wealth or power. 
And something that I love about this story is that Jesus calls us away from that transactional thinking. We're actually allowed to think of things and people outside of their maximized efficiency or their net value. Perfume is more than a commodity in this story. It's worth more than a particular dollar amount. It's something that's beautiful, something that has a beautiful texture that is soothing and has a smell. It has ritualistic meaning for burial in this culture. And again, it's so easy when we're talking about issues of poverty or homelessness to get caught in this scarcity mindset that there's not enough. I love the song we sang about enough, more than enough. Because we get so focused on what people lack economically and we forget about all the things that make us human, the things that make us whole. And because of that, we expect people uh, who are experiencing homelessness or poverty, uh, when we check those boxes, to be happy with the bare minimum. A crappy two-day-old sandwich, a cot on the floor of a gym next to hundreds of others, an apartment the size of a closet. And more than that, the othering that happens when we forget that the poor are supposed to be with us, right? It neglects the way that all humans, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're housed or unhoused, we need community. We need friendship. We need love in order to, be, to flourish, to be well, to be whole. And I like to think that when Jesus rebukes his followers here, again, many of whom were probably poor, and allows the woman to pour the perfume, he's telling them and he's telling us, it's okay to enjoy this. Just take a minute. We're supposed to be here together. Enjoy the texture. Enjoy the smell. Value the ritual. This moment with us together is worth more than the price that you can put on this jar. Uh, another show of hands, how many of y'all are millennials? Okay, I thought so. Good number of us millennials, <laughs> we're out here. Um, I suspect that a lot of you, but especially the millennials, will remember a bit of drama that happened a few years ago um, centered around one of quote-unquote millennials' favorite things, avocado toast. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So as a refresher, a few years ago, Around 2018, there was an op-ed that circulated all over social media that said, millennials, the reason that you all are so out of it economically, the reason that you can't stay on top of your bills, the reason that you can't afford to buy a house is because you all waste your money on lattes and avocado toast. Ooh, all right, well, we're going to skip over the absurdity of that for a minute because I think... You know, I've maybe eaten one or two avocado toasts in the last three or four years, and I didn't get a huge check in the mail, or no one dropped off a house for me, so I don't know what's going on there. Uh, but what I do want to talk about is what I think is a really insidious belief that is beneath statements like that. It's this idea that something that is delicious or considered <laughs> decadent, right, like avocado smeared on toast, uh, is only for certain kind of people. That if you can't afford to buy a house, that if you're not in a certain class, you should be miserable until you've earned the right. <clears throat> Excuse me, y'all sang my voice out. Thank you for that. Um, that you should be miserable until you've earned the right to afford an avocado toast or other um, delicacies or other things that just make you happy or make your life better. And so this was circulating around 2018, which 
uh, was a couple years into my time working at a drop-in center in Hollywood uh, for people experiencing homelessness, and we had just launched Women's Day. Now, we, uh, we had gotten some data because every year, Los Angeles and really every major city does what's called a point-in-time count, uh, where in, on the same night or the same couple of nights, uh, every city counts how many people are on the streets experiencing homelessness and how many people are in shelters. And we usually get some good demographic information from that too. Uh, and so we looked at the numbers and the demographics for Los Angeles, we looked at them for Hollywood, and we learned from that that in both, around 30%, around one-third of people experiencing homelessness were women. But what we noticed in our drop-in was that that was not the case, that actually what we were seeing was closer to 90, 95% male and you know, 10, 5% female at best. And so we had some suspicions about why that might be, but we got curious and we started doing outreach and asking questions and asking those women who were showing up a lot of discomfort around coming to a drop-in center that was dominated by men. Maybe they had experienced some victimization either in the past or even some from the folks that were coming through our doors. And so we responded by taking a day where we were already closed, which was Fridays, uh, and opening up just for women. And as any of you know who have ever tried to start a new group, a new ministry, a new activity, the best way to get people is to bring food, <laughs> right? And so when we started Women's Day, we said, we're going to cook an amazing breakfast every Friday uh, to keep these women coming in and feeling safe. Uh, and so around the time that this article is circulating, uh, let me tell you, we were a nonprofit full of rebellious millennials. Uh, can you guess what we decided to serve that Friday? Yeah, we served avocado toast. Uh, just being the rebellious millennials we were, we, we made avocado toast. Uh, I know some of you are probably going to go to dinner after this, so I can get you a little excited. I, I baked the bread myself, smashed some avocado on there put some bacon, kind of sprinkled it on there, fried an egg, put it on top, sprinkled a little. But honestly, more than just it being delicious avocado toast, I think it was one of the most holy protests I've ever been a part of, uh, right? Because it was a bunch of rebellious millennials uh, who don't own houses and probably had no chance for a while of owning houses, and a group of women who have been excluded from housing altogether. Uh, eating avocado toast together sort of despite the idea that only certain people should get to enjoy good things. We were supposed to enjoy it together. And I'll tell you all, after years of working with people who uh, you know, might take the label less fortunate, um, I want to tell you that it is not miserable work. Because if you remember that the poor are supposed to be with us, that they are supposed to be us, and that we are allowed to just enjoy being human together is the holiest thing in the world, to share space, laughter, good food, coffee, celebration, friendship with people who experience homelessness. And so what does that community and relationship look like? I think it can look a million different ways. Um, it might look like stopping and having a conversation with someone instead of just handing them a dollar and moving along. It might look like eating with someone rather than just giving them food, rather than just serving food, and making sure that the food that you share together is good, 
right? That it reflects the abundance and goodness of God. It certainly could look like learning people's names and if they're open to it, sharing some stories. I find you'll always be really surprised and humbled by the things that you hear when you have those conversations. Because that's the thing about people, about humans and relationships, is that you never know what to expect. You know, I've had a lot of moments in this work where I've had the big victories, right? Moving someone into housing or, you know, getting somebody that connected to outreach or healthcare or mental health care for the first time in a long time or maybe the first time ever. Uh, but the moments that stick with me, the moments that I always remember are ones like watching Marvel movies uh, with a guy on his TV that was brand new in the apartment that was brand new, eating Philly cheesesteaks after a really difficult housing appointment, um, playing Jenga or Yahtzee in a crowded room, or <laughs> lovingly arguing with a 20-year-old on who is better between Nicki Minaj and Beyonce. Obviously, it is Beyonce. Obviously. <laughs> All due respect, Nikki. Uh, this 20-year-old needed to know. Um, <laughs> this is the stuff of humanity, right? It's the stuff of friendship. And I think Jesus invites us into loving, reciprocal, and equal relationships with the vulnerable and the marginalized, where we aren't there to change them, uh, but we're there for mutual transformation. And so here on Palm Sunday, we remember the day that Jesus subverted everyone's expectations on what a savior should be and what a savior could look like. Because instead of marching on Jerusalem with an army, he rode in from Bethany, the house of the marginalized, surrounded his entry laying down palm branches. And by this time in Jewish history, these palm branches that would normally come from a date tree had very ritualistic meaning. While Jesus was coming to Jerusalem during Passover, uh, the palm branches, much more associated with a festival called Sakat or the Feast of Tabernacles. And Sakat remembers the time where after the Exodus, the people of God spent 40 years in the wilderness. And while they were there in the wilderness, they had to make their own places to live. Uh, and they used things like palm branches, weaving them together to create these makeshift tents, really, um, that, to be honest, don't uh, seem that much different than the tents that we see today, uh, the shelters that people make for themselves in our concrete wilderness, right? Tents that are knitted together with shopping carts and whatever cardboard that people can put together and tarps. And so as we consider this image of Palm Sunday, of the poor and the outcasts laying these palm branches at Jesus' feet. Um, Jesus, their friend, their savior. I hope that it causes us to see ourselves like, like our Jewish friends do each year, to be reminded that uh, we can see ourselves, we can see our own story, uh, we can see humanity in the stories of the poor, of the unhoused, and the marginalized. God bless you all, thank you so much for having me. For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at kaleophx.